Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnall, Australian physiotherapist and calisthenics expert. Rafael Paz is a calisthenics coach with over six years of experience. He has extensive knowledge from a scientific and practical perspective. His high level in planche, Maltese and other bodyweight skills are proof we're in for a real treat. The lack of dogma in Rafael's content is refreshing. He's not afraid to use weights to become a bodyweight beast. This podcast will give you answers with programming for strength, skills, muscle, and much more. Raf, welcome to Fitness FAQ's podcast. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Doing great. Thank you. What are the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to training skills? Okay. I, the first mistake is the word skill. But if we train the planche, if we train the front level, do you think it's really the technique that you lack? To perform a full planche or the full front lever. It's not. It's strength. So by calling that a skill, and it's fine, I get the idea. We, we call it skill because um, that's it's the language, the terminology, the way that we communicate in calisthenics. But if we dive really deeper, it's a strength exercise since strength is the limiting factor and you need to gain strength in order to perform it. If you had more strength, you, you would perform it better. And technique can be improved. Most technical improvements occur usually when you are introduced to a new exercise. So many gems in there relating to the distinction between skills and strength. I don't think it's just a terminology thing because if people respected skills are heavy, in strength component, then they'd train for them accordingly. Because I'm sure you get questions all the time, Raphael. It's uh, training for skills. People treat it somewhat differently to trying to get stronger. And they might just say, oh, I'm going to do it every day or this, this and that, as opposed to treating it with a strength mindset. I love what you said there. And also the other takeaway is the rep range specificity. Just because you're good at doing pull-ups for high reps doesn't mean it's going to translate one for one into the lower rep range. This is what we're going to get with the theme of this podcast is that you have even neurological specificity at different intensities and different rep ranges. Yes. And um, don't get me wrong, uh, calisthenics in general, if we compare it to other sports, uh, strength sports, it is more technical. So you, we do have a lot of technical components in those skills, even those that are, as I said previously, strength-based exercises. Um, and that really allows you to practice them more often because usually the more you practice an exercise, the more technique you can improve. So the more learning exposures you have with an, with an exercise, the more opportunities to learn and those opportunities really magnify once you forget them and come back. So it's not necessarily the amount of volume you perform in one session, but it's the amount of sessions within a training week. So you're forgetting it and you're coming back to learn it again. That really amplifies the learning, uh, of the, the learning aspect. Um, um, so skill acquisition. And you can train them more often. And if you study other sports, strength sports, if you take an exercise 
and you take the exercise, you know, to the extreme, so relative to you, a deadlift would be may maybe more intense than an overhead press, in absolute terms, just by the fact that you're lifting more, right? 200 kilograms as opposed to 100 kilograms. That was a great distinction you made between the volume and intensity of lifting weights, absolute load, versus what we can get away with with more conventional calisthenics movements, which involve a lot of relative strength. The million dollar question I want to ask you is with calisthenics based strength movements, how close should we be trained to failure? Like what proximity to failure should we be working at? So in general, we, you can train closer to failure if you're trying to uh, compare that to other strength sports as we have more skill component to it as well. So once you fail, you will find that you usually will not exert yourself as you could have if you just had little, little to no technique and balance to think about and just, you know, lift, grind. Yeah, again. So, and to this day when I perform, let's say, Iron Cross, each set, I guarantee you that I'm, I'm going to think about the grip, how I rotate the palm as I spread my arms wide to get in the cross position and how, I'm, how I will put myself in a false position, false grip position. And there's a lot of technical cues to think about. Um, so to your question, um, training to failure, it's now like RIR and RPE and, and I don't use those variables that often really, um, especially when coaching because most people do not really know how to really push themselves to that point. They can't really use those variables. It's, they make training slightly more complex than I believe is really beneficial. It takes away some of the simplicity, just the hard work mindset that often is lacking more so than the, ah, let's make it more complex and sophisticated. I see that uh, as a big problem nowadays, the, the science base, the evidence base. What is evidence? Is there something that's not evidence based at, at that point? So it makes things slightly more complex and sophisticated. Uh, I don't use RPE, uh, reps in reserve and stuff like that. You can go closer to failure. And I can tell you that the stronger you get, you will choose those, those efforts wisely. That's perfect. Yeah, it seems exercise dependent and also based on your level of advancement. The more advanced you are, you've got to be more selective because it's not just about getting the ego in that one session. It's about the accumulation of sessions over weeks and months to get the end result. How is weight training useful for calisthenics? I suppose that to begin with, if we didn't really separate between certain methods of resistance training, um, we would find more tools beneficial to our practice. So maybe the definition is arbitrary to begin with because the muscles know tension. They don't know what you're implying force on. 
So, practically speaking, I use weights for usually it will only be for accessories. So, at the point at the workout when I'm trying to tackle my weaknesses, I want to isolate certain muscle groups that are, I believe are lagging behind. Um, and I believe that weights can help us do it, achieve that uh, more efficiently. We can really precisely hit a specific muscle group. We can also, um, we can also try to decrease the gap between limbs. So the right arm and the left arm, you can train unilaterally, uh, which is something that often you can do it uh, as simply. Uh, just by doing calisthenics using your own body weight. Uh, you can train more objectively and measurably. So you can actually, I did six repetitions with six kilograms in that exercise. Some exercises it will be hard for you in calisthenics to objectively measure, especially if you're talking about those isolation type of exercises. Um, I used to use weights as well for loaded stretching. I don't anymore. I don't stretch as much um, and I use weights for rehab and prehab work. What about the people that say, well, if I'm doing weights, I'm going to get bigger, heavier, bulkier, especially those that say, I don't want to train my legs with weights because I'm going to get too big. Does that have an influence on our calisthenics performance? Uh, so, you know, Adding lean mass is not uh, something that is particular to weight training. Again, you can gain weight doing calisthenics, as a lot of athletes demonstrate. Actually, it's a benef you know, completely beneficial way to, to do that. You can achieve a phenomenal physique, big physique, only doing calisthenics. You will also have to really think about your nutrition, get sufficient amount of uh, food and quality sources of food. Um, but calisthenics can achieve that as well. So the thought of if you perform weight training, you will gain a lot of unnecessary muscle mass that really derives from the relative strength myth. So the myth of relative strength is that eventually you become muscle bound. So there's a certain amount of muscle mass that will lower our performance levels um, and there was a really interesting study that was, that was done on the Russian weightlifting team that they tested their vertical jump at different uh, weight categories. So you might expect, okay, all of the athletes are elite level, genetic freaks. You can imagine that the vertical jump was very high amongst all different athletes. So you might assume, okay, so if the vertical jump and the power production of every athlete is very high, I assume that the relatively lower, the lighter uh, weight classes would jump higher. But the case was that obviously everyone jumped above average, but 90 kilogram weight class jumped the highest. So, and if you, if you were talking about relative strength, it's against their body weight, obviously a vertical jump. So as long as you gain muscle mass in muscle groups that are actually beneficial to the sport, 
you will see uh, enhancement in performance. And obviously, if you gain mass in muscle groups that are not necessary for performance, so legs are obviously worked within calisthenics, um, but not to the extent that you, know, you really have to be able to push so much weight uh, squatting and deadlifting. So yeah, it might hinder your performance specifically in calisthenics. And if you're bothered by that, first ask yourself why. And that's a good question to begin with. Um, but um, second, you can really prioritize where you use the weights to accommodate calisthenics performance. Uh, and if you do that wisely, you'll actually see an improved uh, performance. And if you really, let's, let's study gymnasts. Among the gymnasts, the ring specialists are the most jacked among the gymnasts. So just by studying the, the, you know, the greats, the legends of the sport, if muscle mass was not useful at those feats, it wouldn't occur in the first place. The muscle mass is just one adaptation amongst others, technical, neurological, and so on, to be able to perform those feats. It makes sense what you said with targeting areas in a really efficient way. Weights are simply unmatched for doing that. If you want to target biceps with a curl using weights, it's going to be a lot more effective per unit of stress relative to doing say a chin-up because that's involving all of the other musculature so this is i guess the argument against the body weight only specialists if they think that they can do it only with body weight sure you can build muscle using simply calisthenics movements but what Raphael is trying to get across is that it can really help to augment your your progress on your main objectives by building bigger muscles because it's just targeting that one specific area a la isolation having merit it seems when it comes to training people tend to try and push themselves really hard and not often listen to their body maybe comparing themselves to other athletes a bit too much not being satisfied with their rate of progress what would you say is a healthy mindset to have when it comes to long-term training success Okay, so initially, uh, for those who are listening, it's completely fine at the beginning to just mess about. It's, I was there, <laughs> the type of workouts that I did and uh, maybe the incentives to do them weren't as profound as I believe today my practice to be. And um, you have to have sort of a buy-in period um, until you really get the method, the methodology of training more uh, in, in a smart fashion uh, with goals in mind and tracking the progress and really attaching the success, if we can call it so, not to our feelings in a sense that obviously feelings are attached and that's a good thing. You have to be involved if you care about the process. But if your only objective is to when you train to exert yourself or sweat. So you can go in a sauna and you can sweat there. 
Also in Tel Aviv, it's very hot, so you can just stand outside. You will sweat as well. That's not a good workout. So you have to have a buy-in period. <laughs> and once, once you see results, and once you train in a certain fashion, you really get the idea of uh, training in a, in a structured way. Um, so m the mindset, the mindset, I think you have to start with why. Why are you training? What, you want, what do you want to achieve? And then you want to orient your mind about that long-term goal. And then you can really break down into weekly structures and daily workouts. And if you do that, then you understand that each individual training session really is, you know, a fraction of the process. And that's eventually the mindset that a mature practitioner has. Body dysmorphia is really common in calisthenics because we're dealing with a sport where maximizing relative strength involves being lean with low body fat percentages. How do we go about balancing this with having good performance? Hmm. So I believe that each individual has a different body fat percentage set point. So I'm... For instance, I'm not very comfortable maintaining below 10% body, uh, body fat percentage. Uh, I did so, I used to, but the amount of restriction I had on my lifestyle and the influence that had on other uh, aspects of life was too much. Um, so I'm not comfortable at a certain low body fat percentage Every individual has his own body fat percentage set point. And don't get me wrong, you do have to be lean. You have to be lean, you have to be quite exceptionally lean, um, if you compare that to the general population, which is, it's a good thing, because we have to be accountable health-wise as well. Generally, being leaner is healthier, up to a certain point, but they mostly overlap, uh, being leaner and health, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, we have to be accountable for that and uh, you don't want to get too comfortable. But when you think about performance, and of, obviously, yeah, theoretically, would Raphael have more performance at 10% body fat and not 12%? He will have to lift 2 kilos, kilograms less, right? That's the mindset. But what's the downside? What, what, my, what is my hormonal profile at a lower body fat percentage? What's my energy level, mood? What's my mood towards, let's say, training? Because that's the context. What's the, um, how many calories do I have to train? If you limit your calories so much, you only think about maintaining leanness, well, you're missing the whole point. You, you, you have to think about, how do I improve the workout? You know, nowadays the whole, the whole concept around training is so body fat percentage based. So you think about, can I train fasted? Yes, you can, but if you really want to take everything from the workout, should you? I don't know. Some can, some don't. So you have to think about it. Great explanation. I think it's something that people should find 
a sustainable level that they can honestly stick to themselves and not deluding themselves either way, being too lean where it's just horrific to try and maintain or being several kilos above their natural set point. So trying to get that balance is absolutely key. And unfortunately, this is something that every individual has to come to themselves. But I'll just leave people with this advice that comparing yourself to what others look like on the internet is a fool's errand because you really don't know what their characteristics are relative to you and what they're willing to give up. Additionally, there's also a selection bias on the internet. We're only ever going to be seeing the best of the best. And of course, when it comes to the absolute peak of calisthenics, they're going to be those highly lean individuals. So trying to compare that if you're just a beginner, intermediate, average practitioner that's not dedicating their entire life to this, you need to know what game you're playing and stick to that for health and longevity. Raphael, what lessons have you learned from injury? Mm. Injury is another obstacle in the way. So injury, first, let's think about it as not out of the ordinary. That's actually in our path towards performance. Okay, and, and training in general, and we might dive into that later on, it's more than performance, but it's really the path. So the injury is something that will eventually occur to you, even if you seem to have everything uh, checked and in place. Um, and those who really know how to manage injuries uh, really can reach what, relative to them, is high performance. A lot of athletes they, they are stuck, so they push their body to the limits. What are their limits as, let's say, intermediates? And intermediates at the point can really inflict much more damage in training because their performance level is higher. They're performing harder exercise, more weight, harder variations, more leverage. Um, so now they pay the price, okay? Maybe when they were a beginner, you know, it was manageable, now it's not. So then they reach the injury. So now they really have to get to know themselves under a new light, a new scenario, and having to deal with, this, with an injury in order to surpass that obstacle. And that really shifts your mind. Now you understand that you have to be more in control, more precise, more diligent about your training. Training is not one-minded, uh, one uh, you know, just single mindset of grind, hard work, boom, push, you know, 100% effort each workout. There's a lot of different uh, aspects to training uh, mentally, uh, obviously, uh, which are beyond that. And once you enter the session with just that grind mindset, it will eventually happen, that injury. So the injury is an opportunity to really learn and shift your mindset to that more mat mature practitioner that we discussed earlier. And having, you know, learning how to deal with that injury is something that you have to do in order to reach those higher performance levels. But it's really 
something that is beyond training because injuries are like breakups in relationships. So maybe up to the point that something bad didn't happen, you didn't have to really ponder on it. Was I wrong? What did I do? Why did it happen? So you reflect. And if the injury didn't occur, and it's, it, it's the breakup in, in our, our example, you're feeling like you're on top of the world, you're the king. And you're not. And it's a good time to reflect. That's a really good analogy that you gave. That's one that'll stick in my mind for sure. Was there anything in particular in recent times that you took away from something that happened to you? Certainly, a lot of bad stuff. Um, you know, shit happens and you learn from it and you grow. And um, I seek challenge and wherever you seek challenge, you will, you will find obstacles. What about overuse injuries? Specifically, tendinopathy is something that's very common in the calisthenics athlete dealing with, say, golfer's elbow in the common flex origin or biceps tendinopathy. What have you found are the best ways to mitigate this from getting worse or happening and recovering from any tendinopathy injuries? Yeah, so those are the most common injuries in calisthenics to begin with, the overuse injuries, and uh, particularly, particularly in the shoulder and in the elbow, so the golfer's elbow, as you said, for some it is the tennis elbow, um, you have um, biceps, the proximal bicep tendon, uh, tear, and also supraspinatus in the shoulder. So they are very common, so at that point I have precise protocol that I know how to diagnose them, and how to treat them. And for anyone who wants to know, I also have that on my website, uh, Tendon Healing, uh, I believe that blog post is called. And uh, I basically go through different stages um, of rehab, which basically rehab is gradually loading that damaged tissue to the point that you are able to sustain those previous uh, performance levels. So, where the tissue was before it, uh, uh, before the injury occurred. So, gradually from stage one, which is basically extremely high repetition, low load, not to failure, no stretch reflex used um, type of resistance training. I'm talking about 50 repetitions plus. And that's also a protocol that is used by um, Louis Simmons uh, from Westside Barbell. Extremely high repetitions, usually around the 75 repetition mark. And I don't really count repetitions at that point. I just put a song and I just one song. That's about three, four minutes. That's the amount of time under tension that I'm seeking per set. You can do that depending on the severity of the injury, but sometimes I even just lift my arm in space. That's the amount of load that I need. But you can also lose, use extremely light dumbbells or uh, resistance bands. Light resistance bands, they are in particular beneficial because there is something in the elasticity of the band that mimic the tendon quality, that elastic component of tendons. So they are very beneficial to rehab. 
So that's the first stage. And then the second one would be eccentric loading phase. So research found that eccentric, for reasons that are still not 100% understood, they are extremely beneficial for rehab. Okay, so they basically load the tendons significantly. And that's, if we use it correctly, might be beneficial for us to take advantage of. So, extremely slow eccentric, that's maybe eight seconds, 10 seconds eccentric for six repetitions. That's about one minute time under tension. And then the next stages are more, let's say, motivating because they mimic strength training more so than the, the previous two. And uh, that's basically, you know, training, maybe more like a bodybuilder, high repetition range, still not to failure, but controlled. And maybe we're talking about 10 to 15, 10 to 20 repetition range. Uh, again, gradually increasing the load from stage to stage. And you have to perform those stages with a particular exercise that targets the damaged tissues. So if you perform that exercise, and you don't feel the damaged tissues at all, not even one or two on a scale of one to 10 from subjective uh, uh, pain. It means that it doesn't target the damaged tissues. If you don't feel even one out of 10 pain, you have to find the exact pattern. So you can tr try to think about classic uh, training patterns like elbow flexion, elbow extension, shoulder abduction, so on, abduction. Um, and once you find that exercise that slightly aggravates, you have to find the load that is enough to work, stress the damaged tissue, but not to the extent that you are putting the, the, that, that tissue in, in more risk. And uh, that's a perfect way of looking at it because there's yeah. two schools of thought there. It's like people will be like, okay, my tissue is damaged. I'm going to do nothing, rest, let it recover. But we know that that's not the best thing because it needs to have that tissue resilience, which is built through loading, through exercise. Whereas what happened to cause this tendinopathy in the first place was poor load management, doing too much load. So what you've outlined there with the different stages are absolutely perfect for getting someone from a level of aggravation to a level of resilience. In addition to that, I just want to bring up and raise the importance of what you said with the tempo of exercise, because often people tend to get aggravated tendons when they're doing a lot of ballistic stuff where that involves the stretch reflex, it's explosive, it puts a lot of compressive stress on the tendon. What Raphael was saying, if you are afraid of getting a overuse injury of the tendon or you have one and you want to get healthy, essentially you want to pause in the stretch position before you get into the concentric. This will take away a lot of that tissue loading and bias it more towards the muscle. The only thing that needs to be considered with this is it humbles you because you're not being propelled into the next rep. But I really want to just raise that point because that was absolute gold. Good advice. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. 
Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. Raf, why is the straight arm and bent arm training split so popular in calisthenics? It's why, why is it popular? Probably because it allows trainees to train maybe four to six times a week. So they do straight arm, bent arm uh, thrice and one rest day. That's what I did as well. Um, but actually, first of all, it's a movement-oriented split. So if you train calisthenics, if you train to begin with, as a lot of people do with muscle group type of mindset, today I will do chest exercises, tomorrow I'll do leg exercises. This is a movement-oriented training split. So once you really tackle that in that fashion, you structure the workout according to a movement. What will complement, you know, let's say that the primary movement is the planche. It's the straight arm workout, planche and front lever. Then you really uh, try to break down according to the movement what will complement them. Um, so first it allows a lot of frequency. So straight arm, bent arm, if you perform it twice, it's four sessions a week. Uh, you get a lot of touches with each muscle group and each movement, you train basically full body, like four times a week, if, if you repeat that sequence twice. Um, so you get to practice a lot of skills. Usually it's still at a phase that you can really tackle multiple skills at once. So the straight arm, let's take one example, can be in a planche and a front lever session, and the bent arm can be handstand push-up and one-arm chin-ups. So for a beginner or an early intermediate who wants to really achieve it all, to practice a lot of stuff, it allows him to spread his work throughout many different exercises and skills. And that's something that is really, um, um, it appeals a lot of uh, trainees. If someone wanted to combine both straight arm and bent arm in the same workout, how would you order it? That really depends on a lot of things. Um, regarding programming, there's a million ways to you know, structure. Uh, and usually, I first try to look at the individual and how, what's the type of workout that can fit him. And I use different type of uh, uh, neurological uh, uh, personality type of tests test to assess that. So I can practically get to know him before I met him. Um, so there's a lot of ways to get it done. But if I wanted to perform a straight arm and a bent arm exercise in the same uh, workout, you can basically call it a push and a pull split. So you can do planche and handstand push up in the same session. Uh, it's, so that's by definition straight arm and bent arm. Uh, but you can still spread the work. Uh, you know, you can't. You, you don't want to repeat basically the same workout one after another the day after the day without, without having recovery days in between. So you, you change the split to a push-pull, rest, push-pull, uh, leg, uh, whatever. Uh, that's one way. With strength training, there's something called accumulation and intensification. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So basically... And um, what the Soviets did in the, in the 70s, 
And they ran a lot of, uh, they, so it was basically uh, government funded research on the um, Soviet, uh, all the weightlifting teams. So Russian weightlifting teams, and etc., which at the time were at their best. Um, uh, so a lot of research was funded throughout four Olympic competition cycles. So that's 12 to 16 years. Um, and the Soviets came up, their method of breaking training down was linear block periodization. So they believed that, that you needed to train primarily one um, trait, physical trait, physical attribute at once while basically maintaining the other. So they would usually, if the competition was one rep max, right, and the snatch and the clean and jerk, uh, we will start with the opposite. So maybe the first uh, training block and Training block usually is training month, one month. That's really the, uh, for anyone who doesn't really know the terminology, they will start with high volume. So the goal of a high volume block is different from the goal of a high intensity block. And so at the beginning of, of, of training, that macro cycle, that big cycle towards competi competition would be to build work capacity, to build more muscle mass, so we can later on really uh, transfer those uh, traits into maximum effort, okay? Which is really beneficial to calisthenics as well, because that's the sport, it's a strength sport. It's max effort, high intensity, uh, duration holds, um, which are uh, strength-based, strength-limited. Um, so you will train with more volume and then gradually you will build up to higher intensity, slightly drop the volume. And there's a really um, interesting book about the Soviet system, how they uh, structure training. Uh, I ran uh, on myself, which is one useful research, <laughs> uh, a Soviet <laughs> training system, uh, but adapted to calisthenic strength, which is very interesting. And um, that's basically the accumulation to intensification phase. And that was uh, also uh, popularized a lot by to anyone who's been exposed to uh, Ido Portal. He did that when usually didn't, people didn't speak yet with those expressions. Intensification, accumulation, when he did that it was innovative. He took a lot of stuff from Charles Poliquin and uh, um, Charles Poliquin as well made it uh, popular amongst the just gym rats and strength training community. There's a term called GPP which is general physical preparation. Is this something that's important even if our goal is only strength or only muscle? Um, I believe so, yes. And uh, yeah, so GPP, it's basically a phase where you have more variety of exercises and have more, it might even be more variety of repetition ranges. Usually it is the opposite rep range of what you would normally do. So maybe higher repetitions if you're a calisthenics athlete. Uh, athlete. And um, 
having that period is detrimental to build your pyramid of performance. So if you have a very wide base, that's the GPB, a foundation. So the foundation is, let's tackle all muscle groups, muscle groups that I don't get to train. Let's get everything going. Let's use, let's, I don't know, let's get in running shape as well. Maybe increase just my uh, metabolic uh, uh, fitness. Um, do other stuff. You don't quite know how, but when you have a bigger base and you can't even pinpoint what exactly help, you will eventually be able to build a higher skyscraper. And uh, having those periods where you zoom out and train broadly is beneficial even eventually to that peak plunge and front lever performance. And um, specializing at an early stage limits your ability to do so uh, to the point that your tools are so limited just mentally as well. You are so zoomed in, everything you know about training is uh, derived out of two exercises, which are also performed in the same fashion uh, each and every time. Um, so, but you have less tools. And um, every year, I take about two to three months, even unintentionally, my body gravitates towards it. I take two to three months of uh, GPP work, so I might do uh, no straight arm work at all. GPP can will look different to a gymnast and and uh, you know a powerlifter and uh, just basic calisthenic athlete, um, but it will so the GPP work will just look different. Provide a certain perspective to your training, build more capacities, different capacities. General physical preparedness is different. It's just basically doing different stuff than you normally do and could be considered a off-season because every sport, soccer, basketball, baseball, you name it, they have a few months off a year where they're not training or they're doing GPP. Why is calisthenics different? I feel there's people that just want to keep grinding year after year without taking a break and as you said, maybe they've got a poor foundation and that's handicapping them from getting to the top, their peak. Professional athletes have that structure of, you know, um, that season, in-season, off-season. So even if undesired, they get to have that off-season way where they can really alleviate from, from stress, which is specific to, let's say, basketball. And uh, we just love training, so we don't really want to have that off-season. So it's hard for us to not planch or not do one-arm chin-up. We want to do that. Next question, Raf, is how many strength goals should we be training for simultaneously? Okay, so let's first um, separate between strength goal and the fact that when you are improving, you are improving indeed in a broader sense. So if I want to achieve front lever, I will improve multiple exercises by doing so. I want to see improvement in front lever, but also front lever pulls and also, I don't know, pullovers and also chin-ups, and that's fine. But I have a main goal that I derive the sub-goals from, the mini-goals. 
and, and the main goals, I believe that you should only have up to three and the more beginner you are, the more goals you can really uh, set for yourself. The more advanced you, you are, the more you will have to specialize in, in one or two particular goals whilst uh, maintaining others um, or minimizing the, uh, the loss, we can say. Um, so three is the optimal. I agree with that sentiment because that is one of the more common things that I see people slip up on and make a mistake, especially as they have a more advanced training age, is they try and do too many goals at once. And coming back to what we spoke about earlier, the more advanced you are, the more fatigue that you're producing. So there's a mismatch between their passion and the amount of time they can put into training. Some people can spend hours, five, six days a week, but the body doesn't work that way because if you're doing all these strength movements at once, just because you've got time, it doesn't care. This is all fatigue, which is why I really want to yeah. put home for people that having up to three is what I've done for myself personally and for, for my students as well. And the ones that can stick to that are the ones that actually succeed and progress, whereas people that try and juggle too many things at once, they just visit Plateau City and they don't know why. And yes, you can set goals also in different aspects, aspects in training, but also aspects in life. So you can actually, again, not always think about, wow, I want to really devote more time to training. Think about what can you can devote time to that is different. So again, your mind orients around still achieving something, which is for some people a good reason to get out of bed each morning. Uh, but if you only have that training and that particular exercise in mind, you will eventually uh, train it because that's what your mind is oriented towards. But let's say if you train, talking training specifically, uh, barbell back squat, it doesn't take that much out of your planche and one-arm chin-up, you know. You can probably train that quite significantly and you can train your planche fully and you will train the planche the same amount if you weren't back squatting anyway. Or we can even get into hand balancing. You can certainly practice hand balancing even more so. It will not really affect your planche training that much. And maybe at the beginning it would, but at a certain point, it's, it's again, it's just a, ba a balancing exercise, not strength one. So you, you can really attach your mind into another goal that is in training separate, but also having other goals in life where you can keep pushing forward. In calisthenics, the rotator cuff has become of more importance over the last several years. Why is training the external rotators helpful for upper body movements? So the rotator cuff, it, those are the deep muscles that stabilize the shoulder joint, are more needed when the, lever, the leverage is, is increased. So if my arm is completely above my head, rotator cuff work harder. They engage more. We can see that also in research. And uh, same thing when the arm is completely extended out to the side, similar to a 
crucifix position, the iron cross. And um, so you're really targeting calisthenics, the rotator cuff, to a significant degree, more so than in um, movements that are closer to your center of mass. Um, so the rotator cuff has a lot of demand on it. And if you just take a, a traditional um, gym athlete and transfers him over, his level of muscle mass and, and let's say strength, just in a broad term, compared to uh, his ability to stabilize himself in those extremes is uh, really not matching the demands of the sport, of calisthenics. So usually you will have a big gap between anterior shoulder strength and posterior. And you have to have that certain amount of strength in rotator cuff, specifically in a shoulder external rotator, um, in order to really sustain those high level movements. And I usually recommend having 10% of body weight for 10 repetitions uh, uh, with the seated dumbbell Cuban rotation. Uh, but as you really gradually reach more advanced skills, the straight arm, let's say B level, the cross, ring, planch, so on, I would even demand 20% for five repetitions, seated dumbbell Cuban rotations. And just in general, having assessment tools, so like a chart of where should certain muscle groups be uh, and ratios between them is something that I believe uh, will help a lot, you know, just help us, help a lot of athletes. As we said, calisthenics is relatively a new sport in the way that we currently uh, train it and uh, assessment tools are necessary, having those standards. Deloading is something that we should all do when it comes to recovery and getting rid of fatigue. How often should we do it and how should we do it? Beginner doesn't really need to deload at all. I didn't deload my initial, initial two years of training probably, maybe even more than that. Um, but it's a, um, a tool that is more vital for the more uh, uh, intermediate practitioner, I suppose. And then you can deload, let's say once every seven weeks. That's, that's a good one, having a deload week once every seven weeks usually works, so about two months. And the more advanced you get, the more deload you will need. So we see structures with every fourth week, three training weeks, fourth week is a deload week. And usually I would say that you can switch the term advanced and heavy athletes, okay? So heavy practitioners, let's say 80 kilograms and above, you accumulate a lot of stress just by moving your body weight Usually heavier athletes are also taller, so they have more range of motion in every exercise. That means more range of motion, more work, okay? So when you perform a chin-up, that's not the same as the little guy, 60 kilogram athlete, um, performing that. And that's more load, so you, you might want to deload more frequently. So every seventh week, seventh weeks, that's... That's a good general recommendation. And what would you do as far as intensity or volume reduction? What's your preferred method? Do you do one? Do you do both? Okay, so you would usually 
deload that the component that is more usually trained. So if you are a high intensity athlete, you will deload the intensity. And if you're a high volume athlete, you will deload the volume, not the intensity. Um, I would drop the, let's say, volume by, if we're talking about, you can drop the intensity by, the, by about 10%. And that's a lot, 10% it's a lot for practitioners. That's enough for you to still train the pattern and still neurologically be uh, sharp but also um, allow a recovery to occur optimally. And, and um, really with the volumes, you can play with it more so. So I even drop the volume by 50, 60% usually. Uh, you can even not perform the accessories if you want at that stage. You can just tackle the main work and drop the volume significantly, volume by sets. So you'll keep the same amount of repetitions Intensity will be decreased by 10%, but perform significantly less sets. So five sets will be one to two. Three sets will be one set. So you would apply that deload to your existing training program. And then after the deload, you would either resume the same mesocycle or start a new program. Is that correct? Yeah. So I would jump into the next training block. And, uh, you know, um, usually that means adding more weight or uh, increasing the uh, difficulty by variation at that point after the deload week. And then rinse and repeat. Can you explain the benefits of cardio for someone that simply wants to get stronger or build muscle? Um, there's not many. <laughs> So it, it's not, to be quite honest, it's not, it's not necessary if you just, you know, take a, a broad view at, at athletes. Uh, you don't have to have a, a big cardio and a lot of metabolic fitness in order to, to be strong or, or big necessarily. Uh, you, you might want to do that. Maybe it's a wise idea, at least to a certain extent in order to to maintain vitality function. Again, talking about that broad, having that broad foundation. Um, and, but it might help you with, let's say, recovery between workouts and recovery between sets. So if you have better, you know, we call it cardio, but it's, it's more like the metabolic uh, fitness. So, so it's specific to the, amount, to the demand, the time under tension. Uh, a sprint is different metabolically than a high endurance marathon, although people usually refer both to cardio as cardio. Um, but you might recover faster between workouts and you might recover faster between um, uh, working sets, which is crucial just to keep the, the, the body really uh, functioning well and having that work capacity increased. So you can perform more exercises, more work and recover better. There's something that you've spoken about before, which is there's weight mimicking exercises for calisthenics. We're talking about 
lifting dumbbells anteriorly in front of your body to mimic a planche motion through the shoulder flexion. Or you could be using cables to mimic a iron cross. How important are these weight mimicking exercises for the body weight movements? Everything can be done with just the body weight. Let's, let's say that. Um, but I believe that the dumbbell mimicking movement, uh, as I call them, can be highly beneficial. Um, the dumbbell mimicking movement isolate the arm strength needed to perform the skills. And when you perform the skill, let's say a Maltese hold, you have more components to consider. Let's say how I engage my core. Am I completely level? So horizontal to the ground. Are my legs this way, that way? You think about, it's more complex. It's more technically demanding the performing the skill with actual body weight. You can later on train the dumbbell mimicking movement to more isolate the arm strength needed, the raw strength to perform that exercise, which is significant. So, and you can do that also more objectively, again, as we're talking about the, how you can measure weight, isolate it more so. Um, also, therefore, I would usually choose a higher repetition range because it, they can be very stressful since they let more isolate. So if you're talking about usually you train in the three to five repetition range, I will convert that in the dumbbell mimicking exercises, maybe to five to eight repetitions to not really uh, have an elbow injury or whatnot, just to get away from that uh, um, possibility. And uh, I would also say do not train them as a primary exercise. You have to train the bodyweight skill beforehand. And then that combination neurologically happens where you train the planche and then you, you take that raw strength component that is needed and the mind really uh, connects between the two. So you actually train holding your body and then you can separate the strength aspect. I'm glad you gave that example because that feeds into our discussion earlier of using compounds to begin with and then isolation afterwards. It's the exact same thing with that example versus someone that, say, wants to build muscle mass. You'd be doing it in that fashion to get the best of both worlds in both examples. Raf, an issue that people have when it comes to training is progress. People stress if they're doing enough, doing too much. I'd like you to explain a bit more about maximum recoverable volume and why we need to train smart. So first, just to, to give you a, a broad sense of am I doing too much or am I not doing enough? You can ask yourself, am I sore? Am I sore, soreness that delayed onset muscle soreness that you have 24 to 48 hours after a workout? That can give you a good clue. We know that DOMS, that soreness that we get, does not equal performance necessarily, but it can give you a general sense of, am I training hard or am I not training hard at all enough? So if you, do, if you are not sore, you know, at no muscle group, every day or fresh, too fresh almost, you're probably not training hard enough. And if you're sore multiple muscle groups, 
most day of the week, you can really understand that you're ticking toward that point of the, of the curve. You're doing a lot of work, maybe too much. So that can give you a sense of where are you within that curve. And once you position yourself within that curve, you know if you need to lower volume or probably up the volume in order to keep progress. And what do you believe needs more variety, lower body or upper body? <laughs> and that's a specific question. I believe that you know the answer already. And I think that the, <laughs> the lower no, body is... Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> the lower body is, is stupid. We can call it so. Uh, meaning it craves, it, <laughs> it craves intensity. It craves intensity. It has less freedom of movement. It has less mobility in comparison to the shoulders. Okay, we can move the arm in so many ways with so much freedom. And with freedom comes instability. Legs, the hips, let's say, very strong, very stable. And that attribute make them really crave intensity. So you have fewer patterns, fewer ranges of motion. So you, have, you can hinge, you can squat, you can do that in, in, in some fashions. And you can do that intensely. And uh, you don't really have to vary your training that much. You, we see elite, elite physics, elite performance, elite jumping, elite squatting, elite powerlifting, whatnot that is lower body based with not a lot of variety. So people often only perform those exercises in order to improve with no variation at all. Some introduce some variation as well, still within those uh, movement patterns. So you might perform front squat, not back squat. Maybe it will be Bulgarian split squat, not a, not a back squat. But still it will be very similar. So if you're really someone that is not familiar uh, with training, it will seem quite the same. With the upper body, you know, gymnastics looks completely different than it would for, uh, you know, uh, for the average person looking at powerlifting or just the gym. It, it looks completely different. We have so many options with our upper body. Most people want to improve at major compound strength skills, movements, but they often think that just doing the exercise over and over isn't all that's required. So I want to improve my pull-up, I keep doing pull-ups. I want to improve my dip, I keep doing dips. When should we consider addressing weak links and how do we find out what our weak link is for an exercise? First, you don't have really to stop training the, the chin-up, the pull-up. And usually doing them more is the answer, uh, more so than the other way around. You don't really have to uh, go to specific weaknesses and trying to find them in most cases. That's more so for the advanced practitioner. Those things are more pronounced, the more advanced you are, the stronger you get. So you have more pronounced uh, muscle groups, certain muscle groups that are lagging behind as you specialize. So you still train the pull-up, you still train the dip. It's not a, a instead of. And then you really have that mindset of 
problem solving at the second part of the workout, doing your accessories, and that's where you target the weaknesses. Um, so you even complete the picture more so than if you were just train the chin-up. And how you can identify weaknesses, um, it might be difficult at the beginning. Again, that goes to the assessment tools that we discussed uh, previously. If you have that, you know, if you found, I'm working on it, on my book, to have an assessment tool that anyone can look, and if you do that exercise in the ratio of another, you're spot on, you have a good proportions between the biceps and triceps and different elbow flexors, the reverse curls and supinated curls, pushing, pulling, and so on. If you don't have that, you can get it, you can, that's where training with other people is, uh, uh, is beneficial because you can see like big gaps. Let's say your chin-up is on track with other people, but you have a big gap in arm strength, then you, want more, you, you might have a lot of quick, fast, easy reward to get just by training the arms just for the fact that they are less trained. So the margin of improvement is bigger. So having people around you, training with them, comparing uh, to them, that's a good thing. That's a fantastic answer with, it's basically you need to do what you're not good at because that is why it's a weak link to begin with. But the crappy thing is that we're not going to enjoy that because we're not good at it and we're weak, but people should really invest into that weak link stuff if they're finding that they're plateauing for so long and they just can't seem to figure it out you basically got to do what you don't like doing roll your sleeves up and just thank you programming is a really complicated area and we know that we've got the main variables being frequency intensity and volume i read that you made this statement and I think it's fantastic and I'd like you to elaborate on this. It's that only two of the three can be high at any one time out of frequency, mm -hmm. volume and intensity. Why can only two of the three be high at once? So, so you will actually recover from training. So the load that is accumulated, the stress will not be as significant. So when you increase <clears throat> volume, you would usually decrease frequency. So if I'm performing more work in a singular session, I will perform less sessions of that movement pattern, let's say. And so that's the bro split, right? You perform, you, you do chin-ups once a week. That's one, uh, one lift a, a, a day program uh, or both spritz if it's muscle group oriented uh, and you can really take it to the more high frequency uh, approach as well but then you really have to manage the amount of work that you perform in the same session because if you tackle it in the same mindset of the bro split then you will accumulate a lot of stress more so than you can recover from so it is either high volume high intensity, but then extremely low frequency to allow recovery. So it doesn't really matter how much you bash the muscle group or the movement pattern in that workout, you still have seven days. So that's a lot of recovery time. 
and it, it can also be high frequency, high, uh, high volume, but it's, it's a lot of low intensity work that you can really perform every day, flooding a lot of blood to the muscle groups and pumping them and giving love to the joints. That's what I call it. And, uh, but you will lower the intensity. Yeah. This comes back to that idea of you can achieve your goals. You just can't do them all at once. And this is another form of trying to get everything done at the same time and just exceeding recovery capacity. Is circuit training something that is useful? Yeah. Circuit training um, is something that you can perform almost as a light, like a recovery day, um, or you can perform circuit training in order to complete your accessories. So basically circuit training is usually three plus exercises that are performed um, one after another with little to no uh, rest in between and therefore they are usually performed with less intensity, so higher repetitions, because you don't have a lot of rest. The fatigue is the limiting factor, not the strength output. And um, you can certainly perform your accessories as circuit training, and that will also be very time efficient for those who have less time, uh, shorter training window, but also um, as light and recovery days. So you still want to train, you train hard yesterday, and you want to get something done, I myself like doing those type of uh, small workouts, also known as feeder workouts. So you can enter the gym with a different mindset of like, again, like I said, giving love to the joints. So not bashing them, not high intensity, not, I'm trying actually to, there's a workout that I enjoy, I call it everything with a dumbbell. So take a dumbbell that is light enough, and just go on, perform, let's say, eight different exercises. They can be calisthenics oriented. Yeah, they can be dumbbell mimicking exercises. They can be muscle groups that are necessary for the sport, but they will be higher repetitions, lower intensity, and um, that really is great for recovery. Uh, that can boost your recovery. Can you talk to me about training on different apparatuses? be it, say, parallettes versus rings versus floor for, say, something like a, like a planche? I like training on floor to begin with. I believe that I want to be versatile in training. I want to be resilient. So one of the things that caught me in calisthenic, calisthenics is I'm not only strengthening or making certain muscle groups bigger, my fingers get stronger. The joints between my fingers and, and the wrist and everything gets stronger. So I want to be resilient, to perform anywhere, anytime, uh, floor, uh, pavement, grass, sand, whatever. So I, want to, I need to practice that way, okay? I don't want to practice only when I have my wooden parallels and I have my wrist wraps and so on and elbow wrap and no. <laughs> And so I usually begin with floor. Get, get the trainee 
first of all, touching the floor is something that we are, we, we came uh, um, detached from this. We were not, you know, training outdoors, doing calisthenics. One benefit is just actually being outdoors, feeling air on our skin and the sun and getting that vitamin D and feeling the grass and being barefoot. So I like that to begin with. But again, the resilience aspect, if you want to be strong, resilient, you want to, be, to perform anywhere, anytime, perform on floor, okay? And just leave the parallels for now. And you might rotate. You can do that as a training variation even. So maybe today I did max effort on floor, planch holds, and next week would be uh, on parallel bars. It, it stimulates your body differently. It's a different wrist position. And certainly on rings, uh, usually it is more difficult and it is again another training variable that you can manipulate as well in your training um, but I, I want I want to begin with the the hardest like train the planche on the floor and handstands on the floor and then usually it transfers over to parallel bar in particular better than if you perform it the other way around if you start on parallel bars you will usually find hand balancing on the floor with an extended wrist, more difficult. What would you say is your biggest advice that you would like to give someone if they came to you fresh off the street, I want to start doing calisthenics, I want to be getting stronger, what would you leave them with as some words of wisdom? Yeah, I would say to them, maybe take responsibility. So training is a platform that you can actually have complete control over something in your life. And there's not a lot, of, a lot of things that we have complete control over. Let's not dive into that and, and COVID and whatnot. <laughs> and training is certainly one platform that you can just be responsible in a complete sense, physically, mentally, and alter yourself. You know, you can end the workout a different person and that platform is meaningful it's uh, significant it certainly changed me uh, I learned a lot from training um, a lot of what I know in life is actually learned by uh, physical practice um, so I would say take responsibility um, you know that's uh, you're in a position that's something that you should appreciate and, and gratitude and have gratitude towards. You're in a position to actually affect something that is so positive that you should not take it for granted. Once you take it for granted, you will wake up unable to. Wise words, Raphael. We'll end it there. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.